Hi, and welcome to this week's VFX show. I am Mike Seymour, and I am joined by the one and only Jason Diamond. How are you, Jason? Pretty good. We uh, were hoping to have Matt with us, but uh, he's lost in translation. So uh, that's a little in-joke there for your uh, your Marvel fans, because this week we're talking about the one and only, the absolutely phenomenal, I love it to death, Black Widow. But I guess I'm not in the majority, because this film hasn't gone very well at the box office, or at least has it. I mean, lawsuits notwithstanding, this is kind of an interesting film to be discussing, Jason. Yeah, uh, I don't actually haven't even like kept up with the lawsuit thing. Maybe you can explain that to me, but. Well, it's not that we're going to mainly discuss this, but the, the interesting thing is that uh, the film, of course, was designed to go into cinemas. COVID meant that it was uh, dual released. It did a fairly good opening kind of weekend, and then the numbers fell off a cliff making it one of the lower performing Marvel superhero films. Um, and as is the way, um, actors these days tend to have in their contracts, especially when they're on you know, multiple kind of uh, movies, that they get a percentage of the box office. If there's no box office or less box office, they get less, uh, less money. And so a decision to move it to being Disney plus and box office means that Disney theoretically, is increasing its uh, subscription oh, right. base on Disney+. Plus, But of course, it means that people that have got back in on the box office are getting less. Um, and so as a consequence, uh, Scott Johansson decided to sue Disney, which is not unprecedented. What was uh, surprising is how public this went and how fast, because Disney basically came back and said, hey, she got, I'm paraphrasing, of course, she got tons of money. And she's tone deaf to the fact that there are people struggling out there and doing it tough. And how dare you like kind of say you need more money when you got like 20 mil or whatever the number was. <laughs> huh? And then a lot of other people kind of weighed in on we're kind of surprised that Disney slash Marvel is having a go at one of its main stars. And reportedly, even people like Kevin Feige were like weighing in on why the heck is this public? And I don't like this. Uh, yeah. kind of thing. And I have to say, up until this point, you'd have to say on the whole, you've got the impression that everybody is super friendly, matey, good, you know, vibes all around in the Marvel universe. I mean, they, the actors, that is. Yeah. you. I mean, seems that way. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, Downey <clears throat> made insane amounts of money on all the Iron Man and every other movie after that in the back end. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing, right? I think this point's and look, I don't know. This is an uninformed opinion. Um, but I think this points to the fact that in Disney, you have some of the most litigious, uh, how can I put this? You might say vicious, you might say loyal, uh, certainly hardworking lawyers in the entertainment business. This is a company <laughs> that once sued a childcare uh, place because they painted Snow White on the uh, walls of the of the nursery, right. as it were, and it was an unregistered uh use of Snow White and they sued them into painting it out. So this is a company that's not afraid of lawsuits. By contrast, I would argue or suggest that Marvel absolutely wasn't at the center of doing this. And so the Marvel team inside the Disney um, sort of over uh, structure has an incredibly good relationship with its um, its actors. Also, the I think Downey thing is slightly different because he got in at the ground floor, as it were. Well, yeah, he, I mean, he, he built he was the franchise. Make, yeah. yeah. And when you're in in those early days, you know, it's easy for people to say, yeah, if it makes, if it makes hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars, sure, you can have a bunch. Yeah. It's like that's the least level. of my problems. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, like you bought in on series A, you know, like 
yeah. don't expect the same money on Series E. And also the other thing is, well, of course, the films have gone up in their box office, generally speaking. There are a lot mm -hmm. more mouths to feed. I mean, if you look at Avengers, that's a lot of high level, above the line talent. Whereas oh, back yeah. in the days with uh, Iron Man, you've really just got, you know, a couple Three. of names. Yeah. Three, yeah. Yeah. So I think um, okay. that's yeah, unfortunate. But, but then that's my point. Like, has it done badly at the box office or not? Like, if you just look at box office, it hasn't done well. But if you look at the fact that box office is not box office in this age of COVID and right, people. Right. Like where you are in New York, is it fully open in the cinemas? Like just, just sort here? of now. Yeah, just sort of now. Like I was going to go see the Green Knight over the weekend. Uh, and I was like, oh, there'll be plenty of seats. No one's going. And like every show was like pretty much the whole center of the theater was sold out, which is great because I'm friends with David Lowry and I'm happy that his movie is is on in this you know uh temperature temperate of a whatever it is the covid climate that that's happening and same for scarlett johansson i i hope that you know that people are going to see black widow uh, but let's let's also be and we can get off this and get to the movie but you know disney also has jungle cruise out yep. and you know they have a bunch of movies they're trying to shoehorn into the IMAX slot. So like, you know, the movies that would live in the IMAX screen would be, are getting shorter shrift because they got to jump them into the regular theaters to get the yeah. next Disney movie in, you know. But I mean, also there's, there's a ton of other stuff going on here, isn't there? I mean, you've got a backlog of movies because uh, there's a whole lot of movies um, in, you know, in the back. And, and oh, look, we're being joined by Matt. Matt, well, how are Hi, you, Matt? Matt? I'm good. I'm so sorry. I'm tardy. I, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I can't really explain it. <laughs> well, that's right. We've only, we've only been going for 15 minutes and I'm sure the audience will appreciate you joining in if you can. Yeah. Uh, so Matt, we've just been discussing the fun uh, that is the lawsuit between uh, Marvel and uh, Johansson. And also I think what's really interesting um, in addition to the things that we've been discussing is which side somebody comes down on that, because quite frankly, you can't imagine most of the fans going ape crazy for the corporation in any scenario. Um, and certainly uh, Warner Brothers, is, you know, it's not a Disney problem alone to do this day-in-day uh, -day release stuff. But the other thing is here in Sydney, uh, where I am, we've had a, um, a COVID resurgence because we had no COVID cases. Mm -hmm. As a consequence of having no COVID cases, like none, like literally there was a couple of days in February, there was not anyone sick anywhere, um, like not even in the hospital, there was just zip. Uh, no one was getting um, vaccinated because there just didn't seem to be a rush. Once the Delta strain hit, of course, uh, that meant that we were susceptible to it as if we there was no vaccine in existence practically. Having said that, you know, I'm vaccinated, but many, many people aren't and are not for want of trying. We just don't have enough uh vaccines in the country we all sort of i think reasonably said places like india should have it when india was flaring up and we mm -hmm. were free of vaccines mm -hmm. but now yeah. of course we're just we're looking at you guys with envy because <laughs> i am not allowed out of the house uh basically i'm in like super strict lockdown here in sydney so yeah we lived that life that for a neighbors. good while here yeah. uh and i i i'm not 100 sure what school's going to look like in the fall at the university 
Um, there's a meeting about that coming soon, <laughs> but like I'm fully vaccinated as is my wife and my son who's 17 and a high school senior to be in the fall. But yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to know how that's all going to pan out. And, you know, hopefully the Delta strain is the worst of it, but with each person that becomes infected with COVID, uh, it does within each person mutate by nature of virology. Yeah. And so the danger uh, therein is that at some point there could be a mutation that becomes uh, essentially immune to the vaccination uh, opportunities that have been presented to people. So hopefully that won't happen, but yeah, it's tough. It's a difficult um, scenario and it does create for filmmakers and for studios, I think a host of difficult issues to try to address in terms of how to go about distributing a big tentpole style film like this one. And, and I have to say, also, if you're running, say, at Olympics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So is uh, quite extraordinary. So we've, we've discussed, I guess, the business side of it. Let's get back to the VFX and to the film itself. And uh, Matt, we'd love to start by getting your opinion of uh, the movie. Did you like it? Uh, look, I, I'll say this. I, I, I really like all the actors that are in this movie. I think it's a terrible movie. I think it's a terrible. Why did Why did we just know you were going to say that? <laughs> I, it's I didn't care about any uh, of the the humor fell flat in my opinion. There were no real laughs when they attempted to make jokes about like the vest with the pockets or you know whatever the 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 joke of du jour was within a given scene. And then I, I kind of felt like um, something I think you've talked about, Mike, in other films, like there was no peril. I never yeah. felt like there was any person uh, that we cared about in the story and there was nobody ever in any jeopardy within the context of the larger narrative. And, you know, I, I really do think all these actors, Johansson and uh, Rachel Weiss and uh, David Harbour and the woman from uh, Florence Pugh, Florence Pugh from, yeah, the, uh, Midsommar. Yeah. Midsommar, yes. I mean, they're great actors, don't get me wrong, but I feel like they didn't have a whole lot to work with here. And the uh, overarching narrative, just it feels so, so tired, in my opinion. Like, I get that there's elements within the context of this story that feel like they're kind of, you know, gravitating towards like a, you know, like a, a notion of uh, like, kind of agency for, for women and character. And I applaud that. I think that's great, but I feel like it doesn't really land, frankly. Um, there's so, a, there's a degree to which I actually think it's exploitative uh, in some ways of some of the female characters in the story. So it certainly wasn't my favorite Marvel film. I don't think I hated it, but um, can I suggest that maybe one of the reasons for that, and this is probably oversimplistic, but in many of the previous Marvel films, I felt like, they picked a really great genre that was completely nothing that they'd normally sort of done before. Like it's the buddy film or it's the heist film in the case of Ant-Man or it's the whatever. And then they made the Marvel version of that. But this one, this one, they were making the Marvel version of the Marvel film. Yeah. Um, if they'd had some really interesting take on it um, that made it, you know, it's like one of these, uh, I guess, style transfers of plot from uh, something that we, you know, uh, otherwise have enjoyed in a completely different uh, way and then reinterpreted it through the, the Marvel lens. I think that's when they're most successful. And I don't know what that would have been, but I, I would point to the, um, 
Like what's the uh, Villainese uh, TV show, the one, you know, with um, Sandra Oh from... Uh, oh, um, uh, yeah, Killing, Killing Eve. Killing Eve, yeah. Killing Eve, right. So that's a good example, right? Like Killing Eve, you know, you've got a serial killer and someone hunting them and stuff like that, but they like, they kind of took that trope, then they made it their own and mm-hmm. made, you know, both the woman and the detective that's chasing women. And then that gave an interesting bunch of different lenses upon which to look at the problem. And then they added a couple of extra quirky things to it. And as I say, sort of made it their own. And I'm not suggesting for a second that should have been Black Widow, but but when you when you look at something like that, be it, I don't know, whatever we're used to, uh, Sherlock Holmes, for example, but you could, you don't want to redo Sherlock Holmes. have done that a thousand times. But if you take something that we're kind of used to, and then you just do the Marvel version of it, as I say, like we've seen with, I think Thor is a good example, right? Like they managed to sort of pick up yeah. on sort of humorous well, kind Ragnarok of things. Ragnarok then- was like Flash Gordon, basically. Yeah. And then you you go, okay, well, this is the kind of Marvel version of this. So I get all my favorite characters, but I'm getting them through a new kind of story thing that isn't just big third act destruction sequence finale and uh, and no one dies, which again, I think is there, there are two problems it was facing. One is nobody's going to die. Your, your point about uh, no peril is well made. And then the other one is anything that's sort of a prequel or an earlier film you kind of know who's going to live and who's going to exactly. die That's and nothing's going to change anything. Yeah. Cause this is like civil war era. Uh, mm. Right. I mean, so we know what happens. And uh, so these like side quests um, sort of cannon, fil- cannon fillers, cannon fodder yeah. of sorts um, can be fun. Like Loki uh, because it, it, because the, you know, to your point in Loki, they use the metaverse kind of idea so you give yourself the ability to like, oh, well, maybe he will die in this one because it's there's a timeline problem, blah, 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 whatever. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll go into my brief review as well. Like I, I, I enjoyed the humor more than Matt did. Uh, I didn't feel any peril, certainly. Uh, I thought for Florence Pugh just killed it. Like she was, I mean, I thought everyone acted well, but I thought she like really uh took the torch uh if for with her character for what she was given i will say that i don't think ray winstone does a good uh russian accent his his uh <laughs> cockney uh you know yeah, kind of I mean, shine through a little british bit british accent is just yeah. they should have just let him be british but uh yeah. but uh yeah, but yeah it david harbour it would have been great if they'd made him part of the Cambridge Oxford, uh, sorry, Cambridge um, spy network that, you know, came out of uh, the Second World War and like the Russians in the English establishment and that, you know, and then you had like a whole different world that you were right. kind of blowing into with Marvel in, in England. and But he could have been Russians like the original and, English sleeper agent or something. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, there's ways to, to use their Marvelous accents. sort of stuff, yeah. And then we, we suddenly got the Marvel characters in Britain and that's not familiar territory, right? And right. then we can do some stuff there that's all, as I say, like a yeah. different lens. But we I will, get that. <laughs> I will, I will say that this movie suffers from the, from what Europeans say about most American films is that most American films should lose the first thirty minutes. Mm. Uh, you know, just mm. the setup of the family. Like I get it, but because the girls don't care, even when they see the mom and stuff, and you find out that they're not really their parents, like. Why did we need all that setup in the beginning about them being so busted up about it? It just sort of 
Well, in the yeah. end, they in the end they did care. Well, I they, guess right, right but, but like, but, <laughs> but just because they sing American Pie, like the callbacks, it's just for callback purposes. I, I yeah. just I just kind of felt like what well, you know. I watched it this morning. I I, uh, yeah, I watched it this afternoon. I had, yeah, I had I had let my Disney Plus uh, expire because <laughs> I was like, eh, whatever. But I renewed that and paid the umpteen dollars it costed yeah. to watch that film. And whatever, you know, I'm fine with that. That's fine. But it's uh, I, I know there's some great visual effects in this movie. Mm-hmm. There's some like eh, okay visual effects in here, and there's a couple cool, a couple sequences that I think we can talk about. That are one in particular that I think is really poorly. Um, uh, blocked out in the, it was just almost jarring to watch, but um, yeah, I, I wonder in some ways if the formula for some of these kinds of standalone films uh, is just getting like, it's like a, a wet rag that's getting wrung <laughs> out and it's like, there's not much coming out anymore. It feels, if everything feels really this, there's a sameness to it all. And I think for the diehard fans, like they don't care, like they love it. It's great. But I, I still stick by what I said about Loki uh, a couple of weeks ago. I do feel like it's sort of the the McDonald's of of cinema at this point. Like it's <laughs> it's you know what you're going to get. Like I surprise me. I haven't been surprised yet. But okay. But but I was surprised in Loki. No, I think that when Loki did things to Jason's point, like when and this is spoilers, but obviously we it's now over. But when Loki was stabbed and we thought he was killed, like I did sit up i was like is it possible that they killed him here and there's another timeline version of him and stuff like to your jason's point like it was plausible with a character that would have already been made sort of dead by thor that they could kill off a character or that there'd be some sort of variation like there was some interest there with all the different loki's and like and i'm not into the comic books and i and richard e grant i mean but richard e grant was funny yeah and but the whole idea of them like there were funny gags in Loki, like when they all uh, all the Lokis arrived to attack all the Lokis, and then they all double crossed themselves. Right? I mean, it was just—I right. thought that was genuinely funny. Like, I thought it was just like it was like we can't ever win because we can't ever, you know, work together because we are all like untrustworthy. I, I thought that was quite a lot of stuff in in Loki that was a, a good take, but it, and but it, not. But just... it plays out in a different way in that it's a it's a serial too, sure, right? It's sure. a series, yeah. whereas this is it's part of a larger serialized universe of cinematic yeah, and enough. television programs. But, but I think the depth, um, you know, we've come to know that Scarlett Johansson character over the course of a number of films. She doesn't no, have much of a character arc, does she? None, really none. I think like yeah. in, in a way that like, and plus there's a kind of, there's an aspect of elements of the story where like these young girls are taken in a way that feels like a really kind of, you know, uh, sex trafficking kind of Jeffrey Epstein kind of darkness, but they're not in the end turned into anything other than these killer assassins, right? Like it's not in about high heels. Yeah. Which, which also in a weird way, I feel like is sort of like, it's a, it's taking a really serious real world situation and turning it into a cartoon in a way that yeah. I think is, potentially i think there's a there's a, a a case that could be made about that narrative part of the structure of this story that's really uh incredibly disrespectful to so to i'm not women. disagreeing i'm not disagreeing with you on that point i guess my thing is 
compared to Winter Soldier, I thought Loki was a fresh take. I thought Winter Soldier, the TV series, had the same problem that Black Widow had, which is basically nothing happened. We know the characters are going to survive. And it was kind of, you know, we're going to have a big fight sequence and they're going to win in the end and we're going to get end up where we started. Like, you know, give him a shield at the beginning, he gives it away, he gets it back at the end. End of show. Whereas I thought Loki was going to some really interesting places. Now, Black Widow, <clears throat> to me, obviously has a film structure, but that third act problem of we need a big third act and that big third act has to be bigger than you've seen before, but we can't destroy any more cities because otherwise, <laughs> why didn't the other Avengers turn up? Yeah. And why didn't anyone else notice? So the only solution to that is to have it up in the sky and then no one will kind of notice it falling out of the sky, which, you know, I have about a bazillion problems with. Um, but notwithstanding that, uh, I guess, you know, that's the problem I've got with it, that it's, it's not that you can't do original stuff in the Marvel universe. I just feel like it has to be Marvel's take on something else that makes me sort of interested, not just Marvel's take on Marvel. It was, you know, I, I just, I'm, I'm so sick and tired of third act mega destruction sequences, which are normally some of the best visual effects work, Right. Um, but not not really doing much in terms of plot or character. Yeah, and I think in this yeah. case, like this, it, that's also true. There's some amazing visual effects work in the third act of this film with the sort of crashing down of the like ridiculous uh, Cloud City, you know, constant energy mm -hmm. propulsion thing or whatever that was. The red, what it was called, the red city red floor, red floor, or whatever. I mean, whatever. and some of those effects, red room. That, yeah, the red, red room. room, some of that destruction. Some of the destruction stuff was great. And, uh, you know, hats off to, you know, Craig Hammock and his team, Craig Hammock, my old office mate, by the way, at ILM, who uh, is just the most awesome dude, Texas A&M graduate, um, you know, and so there's some great stuff in there, but like, I, who cares? I didn't care. <laughs> I want to, I want to care. So earlier you said there was some really good visual effects and there was some there was one sequence that you didn't like. So what is the sequence that you thought was from a visual effects point disappointing? Well, I think the visual effects are okay in this sequence, but it's it's a dialogue sequence. It's where uh, they're arguing at the the sort of Russian helicopter. Uh, they arrive at that Russian helicopter that the the guy gets for yep. them, right? The mm -hmm. the what do you call it? What did he call himself? He was like a contractor. Or yeah, like a fixer. Or yeah. yeah. And, and while like, you know, the helicopter looked fine. It's a digital uh, helicopter. And I don't know if there's any other environment work in that, but the way they blocked that scene, the helicopter was behind everybody and they were standing in different places. There was only <laughs> one, there were two shots where they did a cutaway and it just, it, and, and the, um, the focal plane that the helicopter sat in, in one of those shots where like somehow everybody was in front of the helicopter, even though they're talking kind of in a three-way conversation in a classic sort of dialogue staging setup. There's one shot in particular that really stood out to me. I went back and actually looked at it a second time where uh, the, the, the person speaking and the helicopter behind them, like, the helicopter is like in sharper focus than the person and it doesn't mm. quite jive. Like it looks, it, it looked like a compositing mistake or, or it felt at, at that. And I think the staging of that dialogue scene, it was almost like it was, it felt too, it was super showy and cutty and 
it felt sort of sloppy to me. Like, I think they maybe also crossed the 180 degree uh, rule, which I don't know how that works actually in a three person conversation, but um, <laughs> the 270 yeah. well, at that point. Yeah. It was confusing. <laughs> it was visually confusing and it didn't quite look right to me. So Jason, how would you have blocked a three-way in front of a helicopter? I mean, it depends on what, you know, like, do you need to cut between all three people? What's the, you know, I don't have the script in front of me. Like I, I and honestly, I think uh, to Matt's point a little bit, I don't even really remember the details of the scene because it was sort of un, uh, remarkable and, and not because it's a, just a dialogue scene. It just was just like, you know, like, uh, and you know, they just kept using that guy, the fixer guy to just like fill holes. Oh, here's your house with a broken thing, broken, uh, you know, generator that causes you to leave. Here's your helicopter that does right. this. It causes you to, they're just little like plot bumps that you can use. So what, but, what I would have thought, yeah, sorry, go on. I'll, I'll let you finish. Oh, I was just going to say, so really, I mean, depending on the really like the, the, the hard beats of the scene, like how you would block it, would you group people? Do you need the helicopter in the background? Like, are we selling some sort of like, uh, do we need to like, do we need it? Like, couldn't someone have force? I mean, they're in a clearing. Like, it's not like they're in a boring area, right? So. Yeah, I, I think it, if you focus on the performance. Yeah. It's, it's a classic example of, and it's just one example. And this is, again, it's totally subjective. It's just my opinion. But I do think it's a classic example of the thing that I know, um, you know, we've heard filmmakers say, I think Lucas says this famously as a quote that I think is attributed to George Lucas, where he says like, you know, a special effect without a story is a pretty boring thing, right? And the, it's sort of an emblematic uh, element of that um, concept in a kind of more narrow focus in that it felt like we were spending time showing off this cool helicopter right. model that had great textures and it looked mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, I mean, looked I'm not great. saying it was a great 3D model, but I felt like we were showing off that model more than we should have within the context of that scene. It should have just been an element in the background, but instead it felt like it became part of the scene in a way that felt like go Tony incorrect. Scott with it, go Tony Scott with it and put it in the background, but shoot everything on an 80 to a 150 and like make it really big. Yeah. Or, or turn or, or throw it way out of focus too. Yeah. like see it once in the establishing and then have it like, you know, in a more shallow depth of field in a more traditional kind of, you know, short, um, kind of dialogue scene and it would be cool. See what I would, I mean, yeah, that's you guys are obviously on the money for visuals, but I guess what I would have loved to have seen is solving that problem by having in the script and thus in the shooting subtext, like I'm fine when you have exposition that's going on about the helicopter. If the audience is reading a subtext that isn't in the lines, in other words, and I look, I've been really watching ER lately. That's a TV show, right? Mm -hmm. But when ER was really good, characters are saying one thing and we all know that they mean another, right? And not only do we know that they mean another because of their expressions and we just are reading really great acting, but that gives us super empathy for the characters. And then the second thing they do in that show a lot is they'll have a parallel story. Again, this is very well used, but they'll have a parallel story that is basically informing the, the A story with the B story. Mm -hmm. They do this in the West Wing as well. And that B story can be procedural, but we all get that the underlying message from the B story is a moral implication to the A story. 
And so that lets you do some fun things because then you can go on about the helicopter and we, as the audience are informed about the helicopter, we see the helicopter, but we know that the scene isn't about the helicopter where right. it's about the fact that she's going to double cross her sister or that she's regretting that she has to make a choice. And we're kind of reading in how she's saying things. Well, what's yeah, going or on. even a richer development of the nature of the character of the sort of fixer guy, mm -hmm. like who's providing access yeah. to the helicopter, which is just a throwaway kind of goof character that like he has no, I think you said it earlier, I think Mike, where it's like, it's true. Like who in the story has a rich and well-developed character arc that we go yeah. on this journey with them and we feel like there's some degree to which they're transformed. Like, I guess the sisters who were really close as children and for some reason engage in this like dead, deadly hand-to-hand -hand combat when they see each other for the first time in years, like in the apartment, like what? And then they're fine. Like, but just minutes ago, they were trying to kill each other. Like, I don't understand why, like, why were they trying to kill each other? Yeah. But I mean, just going back to that helicopter scene for a second, right? Like, I don't want to label the point, but like what I love when you do that is that, and I'm sure Jason, you can speak to this as a director. Like it's so great then when you can be having lines on the page that like two characters are saying most of the lines, but most of mm -hmm. the screen time ends up on the third character because it's the subtext from the third character. We don't, yeah. we want to hear the words for the exposition, but but you don't just point the camera at the person that's talking. Yeah. <laughs> if you've got subtext, you don't have to, right? And so we can have the guy walking around the back explaining the helicopter, giving us all of the exposition we want. And we're, we're empathizing with a character who isn't speaking, who gets all the best acting, but not all the actual dialogue. Yeah. And I always and, think well, those are like, go on. No, I agree with you. I mean, there's also, let's not forget camera movement too. Yep. Right? I mean, we don't have to just cut around. We can do longer sequences and more complex blocking. I mean, watch any Wes Anderson, watch Rushmore without the sound. I mean, the whole movie is a 40 mil anamorphic lens and there's like eight blocking changes per scene because people are just walking up, you know, to deliver a line and then all of a sudden the camera just turns like five degrees and it's a two shot medium. Like, you know, you can do all sorts of things to, to give some energy to the scene, obviously intentionally, not just to do it, but yeah, key, but key, key. I mean, Rushmore is a great example. Great movie. Like, I love that movie. Like, it's so good. But like, I think the other thing that's happening in the context of the script of Rushmore that's allowing for the scenes to be blocked in a certain way, allowing for particular types of camera movement, particular kinds of lensing, is that there are multiple characters in the ensemble mm -hmm. kind of nature of that narrative. There's main characters, but there are multiple characters who are all having complex character arcs and they're intersecting and crisscrossing in interesting ways. And those are the things that drive the decision-making in the mind of the director and the team production team to make those choices about how to block a scene. Why would you choose to block it and frame it in, you know, mm -hmm. in composition X versus composition Z? Well, well this it's driven by story and character and there's no character and real story within the context of this film. So the right. choices are relatively arbitrary right. and they feel arbitrary in this instance, I think. Yes. And, and just to end my blocking sort of thought, uh, I was watching Raiders of the Lost Ark for the gajillionth time the other night. <laughs> and when, after they get the arc, and it's nighttime and they're putting it on the boat. 
it's all like a wonder, right? And Sala and Indy and Marion walk up, they talk to the captain. So Sala walks up, introduces them to the captain, and then he, for no seeming reason, walks at the camera and stands in an over the shoulder so that, and you're like, oh, he's just, why is he standing there? It's not distracting. But then when Indy and Marion are done talking to the captain, Marion walks up into a close-up and delivers her goodbye to Sala. And you're like, okay, like it's all one shot. And we've, we've moved into these different blockings. I'm not saying they should have done the helicopter thing like that. I'm just saying of the, yeah. of the ways that but there are. It's two. motivated. Yeah. It's oh, purely yeah. motivated. But what we're talking about here really is the pivotal difference between being a VFX artist who is working on a killer shot and the VFX artist as storyteller um, and who is aware of the blocking in the broader context of what the scene is about. Yes. And I think we can't walk away. Now, I know the director is hugely and the cinematographer hugely influential on this, but we can't walk away from the fact that that's the VFX artists as well, because they're introducing all these elements into the frame that really yes. haven't been there before. So they do have a role to play in that blocking and, and framing. And I would say the blocking and framing at the end of Mad Max, the second Mad Max film, when they're, um, they've got the train, effectively it's a train, uh, like the, it, it's shooting oh, one way and you've Fury got a Road? car coming. No, the second Mad Max. Oh, uh, Road Warrior. Yeah. 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 But we didn't call that. Yeah. Mad Max <laughs> 2. <laughs> anyway. So you've got a car coming one way, which is a threat. You've got him reaching for the uh, gun cartridges on the bonnet. Uh, into another threat. Is he going to get knocked off the thing? And there's like multiple, uh, and the audience is already orientated to what's going on, but the blocking between the sort of the close-up and the wide and the multiple areas of drama. Um, so it doesn't have to be narrative driven and it doesn't have to be uh, like clever onesies. It can be fast cutting action. God yeah. knows Mad Max. Yeah, for that. of course. No, of course. But it's a very... Um, it's a beautiful exercise that film from a at that point relatively young filmmaker in making sure you knew where your eye was on the screen. And if you're watching that film, you never have to get your eye from the left of frame to the right of frame on a hard cut. Right. Like if you're looking to the left, the action of the next cut is going to happen with the focus is on the left, even though that may be like uh, nothing to do with crossing the line. Like it just is how your eye moves around the screen. And yeah. It's because you can't take in the information quickly enough and you'll be disorientated if you've suddenly got to realize that, oh, it's over there, not over here yep. kind of thing. And so I think that I think that that's a problem when you're working on a shot. If you're going to work on a shot for like a week, a month, like a really long period of time, being able to, um, what's that editing term? You've got to uh, kill your babies. You know, like yeah. you've got to mm -hmm. be able to give up. Kill your up, darlings, yeah. Kill your darlings, right. You've got to be able to give up on, you know what, the textures on this is awesome. We've got to have it in focus because I spent weeks on that. <laughs> right. <laughs> you've got to be able to say, yeah, you know, it'd be much more interesting if uh, if that's out of focus. I'm, I'm doing some work on a film at the moment and a character is holding something and the director cleverly keeps our focus on the thing he's holding, thus causing the actor to be out of focus dramatically. And what he's saying is incredibly harsh at that point, but it's just an act of good filmmaking to not be able to see the actor's face in focus. It just adds such a sinister air, but it isn't melodramatic. It's just, he's naturally gone for something 
And so to suddenly do a rack focus to pull him into focus would be really quite harsh in a very slow moving, super dramatic sequence. But he's engineered it, in this case, it was a male director, engineered it so that we're out of focus on the object when these killer lines are being delivered. And it makes it just so interesting. But I mean, you know, if you're the actor, I want to be in focus for my close-up kind of thing, right? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, and if you're the like, VFX just, artist, the same thing. It just makes me feel like, you know, it makes me think back to film school and things we talk about at university anyway, like, you know, about filmmaking and, you know, just the, you know, the mise-en-scene, right? Like the French term, like of the kind of the way in which all the elements kind of function and work together. And I think there are instances in great films and things, maybe things like you're describing, Mike, where like it really is all there and it's intentional and there is, it's driven. And there's ways in which uh, you can still make a fun movie and you can still have a lot of people who want to go see it. But like you're missing out on potential to really take what you're doing that maybe is just fun, you know, fan service and a fun action movie. You're missing out on opportunity to take it and elevate it a little bit further. You're 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 not utilizing the tools of visual storytelling and cinematic kind of um, machinations to really create something that has, uh, you know, teeth in a way as a piece of art. I think, and that's the mistake that I that I feel like I see some in some of these films potentially. What, what did you think about that third act? The um, now just talking about the visual effects and the blocking, not talking about the fact that we have a big destruction sequence. Because I I went all Mike Seymour on that scene and actually timed <laughs> the whole thing and worked out how far how long it would take to fall from fourteen thousand feet. First of all, I had to work out at what height they could have the red room. And I worked out that without having separate oxygen, you could get up to about 14,000 feet. And then I timed, worked out how long it would take a skydiver to drop from 14,000 feet and not die. And then I worked out how long that was. Then I timed the actual <laughs> show to see how long Johansson was falling for, notwithstanding that she got a, a midway down um, parachute. And actually, I will say that the math works. It's, this oh, is not really? a Spider-Man incident. Yeah. Oh, wow. Actually I'm, sh takes... I'm shocked. I thought we were going in a totally different direction. No, there. you'd think that, wouldn't you? And I was expecting that. But actually, yeah, if you jumped from 14,000 feet and you were not trying to, I mean, you could argue it percentages, right? Like she does do a, a nosedive at the beginning where she puts her hands back and does the yeah. faster fall. But if you are uh, skydiving, and you do stop halfway to get a lift from somebody with a parachute and you do a base jump at the end. So you don't really open the chute much before you have to. It's about the right on the screen timing mm. to actually uh, do that drop. Well, Having said that, she hits, well, she hits the things that oh, now, now that's where it goes wrong, right? Because <laughs> the things that are going to be falling are going to be falling at the same speed she is. We know that's that, true. right? That's true. So why is she falling faster than the objects that she's falling past? That doesn't work. I'm sorry. That's my that was my physics problem with it. But leaving that aside, and her slowing herself down by putting a sword through a panel, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, leaving that aside for a second. Yeah, I was pretty uh, interested in that. But uh, well, anyway, Matt, what did you think of that uh, that sequence? That third act sequence of the the sort of aerial destruction combat. Of, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, from a story point of view, like. What no, 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 I, no. From a visual effects point oh, of view. Oh, from a visual effects point of view. I think <laughs> I, I thought that um, you know, some of the things that I thought were really uh visually uh arresting and func and functioned really well. I I like the look 
of this kind of weird, um, it looks like a locator from Maya or something, you know, like this is like weird craft that's hovering in the clouds, this sort of cloud city kind of thing. I think the initial establishing shot of that space was kind of cool. And then as uh, there are elements that, um, you know, get, I can't remember quite who blows up what, but a bunch of stuff, right? So a sister sticks the, the, the yeah. oh, right. sister sticks the spike in the other um, rotor, right? Thus throwing her off. But the mom had that, already blown up the one of the engines to the whole shebang. No. Well, they were in they were in their own craft. <laughs> no, but <there's, laughs> no, but the first thing was that one of the big engines holding the whole thing uh, yes, up. Went, in in the film. They don't actually have it plummeting at that point. I, no, I noted that. Right. It stays, it stays, it's it's like stays, it stays in the air. Yeah. But it's lost Unstable. one engine. Yeah. It's lost yeah. some stability or something. You'd, um, you'd actually want to have some redundancy it, in that thing. It lists, I think, slightly, <laughs> maybe, which, yeah. But I it's think in, that, not implied that it's actually falling. Yeah. Because right? they can jump off it. If it was but falling, I, but I they think, would get a zero gravity kind of effect. I think at the beginning of that bit, like some of that stuff visually is pretty arresting. And I think they do a fairly good job with the overall certainly with the destruction sims and all the kind of what i assume is a you know houdini or houdini-esque kind of um you know thermal dynamic simulation yeah. of some of the engine stuff and i think all that looks pretty great um and then the the, the subsequent bits where like one of those long uh uh, gangways i don't know what you call them but they're mm -hmm. sort of uh, like you know it starts to it starts to collapse kind of at one end and it's coming apart i thought that too um was really well executed and, and visually compelling and interesting um i think where it started to kind of uh for me visually become both confusing a little bit too like supernatural kind of um and two almost like i could see the previous shot design in the subsequent like um uh skydiving kind of chasing falling through debris stuff where i think you know saying that the physics kind of work out in terms of the timing like well that's cool <laughs> but like visually i don't know it'd be interesting to see something that we could still understand visually, but that more was there was these echoes to Moonraker. In I was going to say right? Moonraker yeah, with, with Draco <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about one of the things in Moonraker that's really still pretty cool is the chase uh, that happens where mm -hmm. they, they form and it's actual skydiving. Right. And it would have been interesting to see. Uh, and maybe they don't, they didn't have the budget for this, or maybe it's like, oh, it's cheaper to do it this way. It's safer, obviously. But it would be interesting to see some actual footage incorporated into a sequence like that. Like, I don't think I've, maybe Mission Impossible did that. Mission Impossible. Yeah, the Halo yeah. jump. Yeah. yeah. Mission but Impossible that, is real but, footage. But that's a better sequence that's kind of similar in some ways, right? I think it's a better visual well, execution. Well, there's uh, not as much stuff in the there's air. No like, there's no destruction at all. But it's still, just, like, yeah, if, you, if you you could yeah. have all the stuff in the air yeah. and it would be more interesting to try to act. And it would be an interesting visual effects challenge too, to try to do match moves on stuff like that, as well as mm -hmm. um, compositing, you know, in a real kind of atmospheric environment. Like that would be exciting filmmaking. I didn't. I'm blocking. Oh, go ahead. 
I was going to say, my, my two blocking problems with the sequence, and I liked it as a visual effects, because as you say, the destruction sequence is excellent. The destruction Sims is excellent. <clears throat> my two problems with it from a blocking point of view, um, one, I think we should have been better informed where the earth was, because quite often when you see a jump, there's the earth way down in the distance, right? And it's coming at you quick. And uh, there was a sequence in one of the Bond films when that was happening. And you remember they ended up in the cave at the very end of that Bond film. I think it was in Casino Royale. They opened the chute very late and they end up in a kind of a, a red kind of canyony kind of section. But they, you actually think they've gone through the earth because there's like they, they hit, but luckily it's a hole. So they mm-hmm. uh, don't die. Um, so I thought that was a shame because that gives you what you want in terms of uh, just real sense of how far we are off the yeah, ground. See the curvature. Uh, of the yeah. earth and everything. Yeah. And then the other problem was I don't feel like I, I would have liked to have seen the Mad Max phenomenon of a dual problem. Like the sister could have been the dual problem, right? That there was somebody trying to kill her who was then mm-hmm. going to kill her. You know, it was like you needed like multiple points where Scarlett Johansson would seem like she couldn't win because right. there were multiple things coming at her from multiple points of view. And we, the audience, could see that what was happening behind her was going to, you know, somehow screw her up and you'd like you're on the edge of your seat because how is she going to get out of this kind of thing whereas it was more like uh a ballet of from a to b to b to c to c to tangled and down to d well because if you had if you had if from a blocking perspective again if you had if you had the sister have something that taskmaster needed to get that you know the assassin uh and that that Scarlett Johansson actually is not in peril in the scene because they're she's you know the bad guy's just going after the sister, and her yeah. her a story is trying to stop that while at the same time doing the dance through the mousetrap of all the you know to your point Mike she's about to win and then you see over someone's shoulder that there's a piece of something that clearly no one can get out of the way of and then oh, what's going to happen you know you build those little moment and it was like half of that it was it was like they were tr- it seemed like they were trying to do that uh i i didn't mind i think the sequence as blocked was fun uh i think to like it really would have like solidified with your concept mike of the like camera up camera tilts down and you see you know the curvature of the earth and some atmosphere and like you know, you don't feel clouds going by. You don't, you see the other debris moving, but there's no atmosphere otherwise in the, you know, you have all this smoke and explosions, but nothing's really. I thought it jumped the shark. I thought it jumped the shark when she went through the helicopter, right? Yeah. Because. Yeah. Because I was like, because of the blades. Yeah. I mean, I feel like when you've got blades on a chopper, like that would have been a great case of, you know, it cutting lines of something that meant that she finally got a, you know, a, 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 a parachute and then yeah. she gets a tail rotor that like ruins She can be Julie, like, Julianne as she passes through the various rotors. And, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. But, but yeah, managing to negotiate through a helicopter just seems to me to be, you know, pretty hard ask. And also we have been spoiled in Mission Impossible now changing Mission Impossible films to the helicopter chase sequence uh, that was oh, yeah. the last one or the second last one, which they did have those really nice sort of almost GoPro wide angle kind of shots mm-hmm. that just mm-hmm. felt so real. Uh, and you'd sort of see Tom Cruise and then you'd see 
from the outside of the chopper. You'd see Tom Cruise on the left. You'd see the down the side of yeah. it to a chopper coming up behind, and they'd be not in sync. They'd be swaying left and swaying right as he shot, and you were like, you know, this is not good. <laughs> and uh, and I just felt like that that realism would have added a lot more drama. And yeah, there's an aspect of that kind of filmmaking that would be really powerful mm -hmm. to utilize mm -hmm. in this Marvel universe where appropriate. Like, I think, you know, they focus so much on uh, and seem to really emphasize a lot of, which, I mean, it's great. It's great for visual effects artists because it's all VFX, mm -hmm. but, but there's so much emphasis and focus on really creating these almost like, you know, supernatural kinds of events as opposed to like yeah. a kind of realism. And I think I, I feel like as a, as a, as a viewer, like I want to, I want to care. Like I I'm, I'm willing to go there. I love that, you know, black widow character in the first so, Avengers movie, but I don't, but you would have cared about care. Bourne identity, right? And you would have cared about Jason Bourne, even though you knew Jason Bourne wasn't going to die. Right. And surely that's just coming from the realism. Yeah, I think okay. it does give you a lot. It gives you a lot as a viewer, as an audience member, it gives you a lot to hold on to. Like it's grounded in a certain kind of like literal reality. And I think that makes a big difference. Well, can I also point out that this is, dare I say, the third, third act in the sky? Because we had, we That's had true. Ultron was Sokovia, right? Yeah. Another one was the Avengers like aircraft carrier thing. Yeah, the helicarrier. <laughs> yeah. Like, so this is the third in the sky, third act. Different, so, different. Uh, so, well, know, I climax, said that it took but... a, about the right amount of time for it to drop. I should now give you a couple of caveats. Firstly, <laughs> the, the ground had to be at sea level and uh, they had to be at the height that you could reasonably still survive without oxygen, which, you know, they're basically falling slightly short of the height of Everest. Um, the second problem I have is that things were falling at different speeds and in unexplained ways, yeah, <laughs> which gives, you know, the illusion of artificial gravity, but there is actually no gravity if everything's falling at the same way. That is, well, they there were, is a they, weightlessness. Certain things were forced at an accelerated rate towards yeah, the ground from the explosive. No but my biggest physics problem was if you wanted to hide something from the world in a period of the modern era, sticking it up in the sky like that, where it's <laughs> visible on radar, it's visible to cell towers. It's visible yeah. to satellites. It's visible to anyone who happens to be flying by. And there are quite a lot of planes these days. Like that, there was no feasible way. Like at least with the helicarrier, it had, hey, we're going to press the invisibility button, right? With this thing, it was just like, we're parking it in the clouds. And I'm like, yeah. I'm sorry, are you creating a permanent cloud field? <laughs> like what about the days when there is no cloud? And everyone goes, yeah, hey, yeah. look, there's a large mountain up in the sky. <laughs> that's not a mountain. That's a, yeah. that's a secret base. It seemed oddly reminiscent also the design of it. I know you said like a Bespin kind of thing, but I would say also the, the big UFO from Close Encounters, you know, it had that upside down. I just like uh, that. Like, you can't, vibe. How can we have not worked out where the where it was? Not because it's underground and thus not visible and not detectable. No, we hadn't worked it's out where sky. it was because it's up there where mm -hmm. everybody can see it. Well, everybody's oh, okay. in that in that universe. Everyone is so depressed that no one looks up because there's no. Yeah. Can no they one, look down at nothing. their Google Maps? Well, aren't and they over Russia matters. or something? But aren't they over Russia or something? Oh, and that and no one has any satellites going over Russia. I don't. You know, I'm yeah. sorry. That that just uh, yeah, but it isn't it isn't it isn't so much a problem that you go oh well that Mike's just nitpicking and you know like it's the 
when you're on the enterprise, you turn to left in episode four and you turn to right in episode 23. It's not so much that. It's more like, I just like it when they come up with really inventive writer's room solutions to problems, right? Yeah. Like I like it when uh, you go, I have no idea how this is going to play out. Um, There there are TV shows that I've watched, like narrative dramas, like cop shows and stuff, where Mm -hmm. I can just say, well, there's somebody who's going to walk through that door and he's likely to be killed just because of Mm -hmm. the blocking. Yeah. But there are others yeah. where I'm like, I have no idea what's going on here. Like, and uh, and they're really inventive in the way that they've kind of constructed stuff. And as I said, not as a visual effects point of view, just from a narrative point of view. Can I bring what, up my what I what was one of my favorite sequences? Maybe you'll yeah, agree yeah. or disagree. Was and I thought also as a jump to reintroduction of care of a character, uh, the David Harbor prison sequence i thought was very fun because you you haven't seen him since the first like opening scene you come back to him he's got the big beard he's got the tattoos he clearly has superpowers of some kind because he flips the truck in the beginning and he's like you know crushing everybody at arm wrestling while getting tattooed like it was a good comedic kind of beat uh well i uh, yeah, to your point earlier, I, I agree with you. I think some of the jokes were funny when he's walking along, going, "So Captain America would have talked about me, right?" Like, yeah. you know, he's you and I are like, and everyone's like, "No," nah. yeah. he's like, "No, no." But I mean, we are the two, you know, foes, yeah. the, the legendary, and they're like, yeah. "No, no, yeah, no." That was that was fun. Yeah, the red, was fun. red guardian. Yeah, Matt. Matt uh, for those of you that are listening to the audio only, Matt is shaking his head right now. I mean, <laughs> you know, I guess I mean it's okay. Oh come on, it was a funny. But- but he played that, it well. That whole that whole sequence um, culminating in the the helicopter, and we can I'm I'm sure there's a million physics problems of them navigating that size of a helicopter through all that gantry. But that aside, I I sort of like the concept of because it's it's very subtle. No one ever said we have quiet guns. We have you know it was a very low exposition thing, and you have the soldiers shooting and you hear the guns sound like pop guns they're like and you're, the audience says to themselves those guns sound really weird i wonder why you know it's subtext and then the girls or he you know blows up the thing yeah. and they're like oh because they're in a giant bowl and in siberia and oh shit and so now you have the ticking clock of the you know collapsing um uh you know yeah, avalanches. Uh, avalanches and yeah. whatever and, and the poor prisoners that were going to die yeah or red shirts yeah i was uh, gonna say that the body count in this movie is incredibly high yeah and like the apathy uh for the dead is pretty gr- it's pretty grim <laughs> that no one cares uh, yeah about all these people who died these innocent you know, potentially many other innocent political prisoners who mm-hmm. are just killed. It's just like they make a joke as they fly away. And I'm just like, Ugh, you know, like, like it's hard to care about any of them in that context. They're kind of jerks. Yeah. Well, from yeah. a visual effects standpoint, however, uh, I did yeah. like the, the environment work of the, of the surrounding prison. hillsides, the prison, yeah. all the gantry yeah. stuff, like it all worked really nicely. And I think something that's really hard to do that I actually think was really effective too was the, I think it was the black Scarlett Johansson character, yeah. right? Hanging from the mm-hmm. the cable. And like, yeah. there's one shot in particular where the helicopter sort of comes around and we see her swinging and she's so tiny in frame. Yeah. But I was like, 
you know, for a digi double, like that looks pretty good. Yeah, because it then, went through it, the it went through the mist of the yeah the snow, like yeah. it, and when the helicopter takes off, yeah. and pulls out the the displacement mm-hmm. and the sort of vortices from the yeah. helicopter and how it displaced a lot of that snow, I thought that was really that yeah. looked really cool. I thought the snow sims in general, like they felt it felt like, you know, pretty realistic. Didn't, yeah. you know, the lighting was good. Didn't feel overly uh, particle Cause you know, sometimes it just looks like big giant snowballs and you're just like, you know, it had some, but it was really dusty as it would it be. It was a good scale, wasn't it? it yeah. It felt yeah. like it was to scale. Yeah. It didn't, mm-hmm. I guess you either get that problem, but it looks like a miniature. <laughs> and also you don't know, um, they haven't set up David Harbour's character as like necessary to the plot. So from a peril standpoint, they kind of, dodge and weave of like are they going to pick them up or are they going to be like oh shit well fuck it we're out you know what i mean yeah, they kind of they kind of uh, i mean uh, you assume they're going to pick I'm them more, up i'm more with matt on that one well you assume they're going to pick them up but they at least have the ability to dance up dance with it a little bit yeah they held it back till the, the yeah. last possible minute yeah. but yeah yeah i think i think one of the interesting things to then ask is do you think this is going to change will this be a repeating kind of stamp for us for the next X number of Marvel films. Like we've got Spider-Man coming possibly with a host of characters from other Spider-Man movies mm-hmm. brought back by the metaverse. And we've got Dr. Strange and we've got the seven ring, uh, five rings, seven rings, whichever the Asian uh, yeah, Marvel Sean. film is. Yeah. And the, uh, the Eternals, because we've got a stack up of um, unreleased films, we've now got a whole lot of Marvel films that we know about that are coming real soon now. Do we feel like any of those stand a chance of breaking out from this pattern that we've been criticizing the films over? I do. I I think there's every reason, like the only reasons I think some of these properties don't from at least, you know, it's totally subjective. Don't get me wrong. I know that, but like, you know, I think for some of the, some of the reasons that some of these properties don't work as well for me, some of these projects is it's just what I'm saying. I feel like we're, there's not much story. There's not much agency for the characters. There aren't necessarily great character arcs. I don't feel like anyone's in danger. And so like, I don't care that much. Like, and I really want to care, but I don't. But I think there's every opportunity with each new story or each new episode, like you can put some skin in the game. You know, give me a good writer well, also, and like I mean, make make it yeah. work. Like, but there's no reason you can't. But that's also, again, I think we've identified that like a movie like this one is uh, filler for the canon. Uh, no, but, but it could still have more cowbell. You know, okay, well, but, it, but it could. But, but Legend you, of the t- Legend what? of the Ten Rings, yeah. and uh, the Eternals, Eternals are new. Don't. Yeah, exactly. So we don't have any skin in the game for we know what's going to happen to all these characters. And Chloe Zhao, who did, you know, uh, Nomadland is doing the Eternals. So you would hope that, you know, she's able to squeeze out some of her voice in the. Yeah, hopefully it's not assumed. (laughs) No one thinks that Spider-Man's going to die or that Doctor Strange will be in trouble. And. Everybody, I think, like me, imagines that Thor, Love and Thunder is just going to be a great, fun comedy. Um, but Guardians of the Galaxy... The... What? Wait, go ahead. 
I was going to say, like, Guardians of the Galaxy is slightly different because we don't think they're going to be making a whole lot more Guardians of the Galaxy, not with these particular Guardians. Um, and then Wakanda Forever is really interesting because you've lost the main character, right, already. Like, you, mm-hmm. you've actually lost the, king, the main actor, yeah, um, sadly. sadly. So, so some of these films have the potential to be quite creative with their plots and not fall into... Um, that pattern of that this one sort of I'm judging from like just speaking. I mean, Venom two, I don't expect I expect it to be great visual effects, but I, you know, I don't I, expect I have, yeah. Uh, I think it'll be good visual effects. Oh well it could be. It'll be good visual effects, but I mean Venom one was a pile of black but I'm, I'm uh, saying I'm not expecting it just to challenge black me. Spider-Man Shakespeare, suit, you know Shakespearean <laughs> kind R. of Kelly. Uh, yeah. But Spider-Man uh, No Way Home could have a terrific kind of fun thing because Spider-Man, the Spider-Verse, the animated one, mm-hmm. totally turned the genre on its head by being such a comic book visual feast and opening the door to, <clears throat> we can have some fun with this. And if they do something similar with the actual live action, that could be a hoot, but yeah. for a different reason. Um, hopefully it's not just a greatest hits. Well, and, and Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yep. Uh, the, coming up also. Are they doing it's another one? one I those two? Isn't there a, yeah, isn't well, there a third one? The metaverse well, the is one, there yeah, part of the metaverse or quantum but, realm? But they're isn't also the, the metaverse. Isn't a, that uh, Facebook's thing? Yeah. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> the dystopian metaverse that we'll all be living in in the future will be. <laughs> the Ant Man one is the uh, uh, what's the name? The female characters uh, wasps. Wasp, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's a lot of films and a lot of, I've got to say a lot of actually, I've read this somewhere, they've actually got to a whiteboard now where they're trying to map these things out. And uh, Kevin Feige apparently is, and I don't know this for truth, but it's been reported, has sort of come out with the rules of what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do. Um, Because at this point, when you have characters coming back to life and changes in the timeline and multiple universes, Mm -hmm. you know, you could do anything, right? Um, and of course, you have that problem that we had in uh, Harry Potter, which is, hey, she's got this thing that lets you go back in time. Why don't we just use that for the rest of the series and solve all problems? Mm-hmm. Um, and once you, you know, can bring characters back from the dead and and do uh, <laughs> extraordinary things with your timelines, then yeah, anything's open. And that does feed into Matt's problem. There just is no, absolutely no peril when no one can die and anything can be fixed and. Um, what I hope they don't fall into is what I think Doctor Who fell into. And I wasn't a huge Doctor Who fan, but my kids were into it. And I had a real problem watching it with them because their problem was uh, they would build an incredibly complicated problem. And at the last second, he'd just basically reverse the selenium rectifier. Don't do the one thing that the whole episode we've been telling you not to do. I'll just do it anyway. And it reset everything in an instant, right? Right. Um, and at a convenient point in time, which is... Well, I adore the film that Tom Cruise was in, um, Love, Die, uh, Repeat. What was the- Edge um, of Tomorrow. Uh, yeah. Ed, Edge of Tomorrow, Edge of yeah. Tomorrow. yeah. But my biggest criticism of Edge of Tomorrow is that when it resets the clock, it conveniently resets it at a point when he's on a helicopter much earlier than ever before. And I was like, wait a second, why'd it jump to there? Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, my point is you just don't want that. We're going to reset the clock in the last closing seconds. We're going to yeah, build yeah. an incredibly elaborate problem. There was apparently a uh, a uh, 
sort of Flash Gordon type series back in the day when you used to have serials happening every Saturday morning at a theatre and kids would turn up and they had, um, I read about this, they had a, a character who was like Flash Gordon and he was tied to a tree on fire uh, with a thing about to fall on him, a snake about to bite him, a spider coming down on his head <laughs> and the whole thing was likely to be lost in either an avalanche or a collapse of something, right? Like there was like at least a dozen ways this guy was going <laughs> to die. And it was like, you know, how will he survive? Come back next week. And they came back next week and I went, having escaped, and back to that. And they went, wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> back up. That's my problem. It's like, you know, the last closing seconds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. walk into the thing that you said, if I did that would be the end of all known matter in the universe and a total sort of collapse of everything that we know to be true. And suddenly everything is okay again. It's the ultimate anyway, marketing. Except, come on. <laughs> except for the one, the one film that does it and it works, which is Ghostbusters. Don't cross the streams. Ooh. Don't cross the streams. Except total particle reversal, end of everything in blah blah blah. That Ackroyd says. And then what do they do? That's the only thing they can do to to, and they just gamble and roll the dice. Yeah, of course they are have established that the guys are idiots, and so well, doing sure, the one but thing that they still, shouldn't do. Yeah. But, Speaking of which, are you looking forward to that uh, new Ghostbusters film? I that, mean, for those listening at home, he's shaking his head. <laughs> I'm curious. I'm Ivan Reichman, the, the Reichman look, family journey. No, I want. I want to see uh, Ridley Scott's 80-year-old movies he's making uh, mm-hmm. at, at the age of 80 something. Uh, House of Gucci and the Last Duel. Okay, I, oh, I, God. I, House of Gucci looks magnificent. Yeah, right. Oh my I God! It's just it. anything with Pacino, like he's hardly in the trailer, and I'm like, I just want. Uh, Give me uh, just wall to wall Pacino, and I'm all happy. I'll say about that trailer is the accents were worse than Black Widow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll give you that. Father, Son, House of Gucci, and with that we shall uh, wrap it up for this week. But obviously, some good films coming down the the pike. If I'm ever allowed out of the house, I look forward to seeing them. Um, otherwise, we might be uh, returning with more TV shows. Um, by the way, my TV show drama that if you haven't seen it yet, uh, the British version, not the American version of. Uh, Line of Duty, uh, is that the one? Um, where they're in, uh, yeah, I think that's it, um, is just so good. They made a, um, a, uh, an American version of Line of Duty, but I just desperately beg you to go and watch the UK uh, Line yeah, of Duty. I, I've, it is I've actually the best been watching procedural. It. Yeah, it's good. So good. Where are you up to? Uh, I, the last season I watched was the one with Kelly McDonald, her first uh, season. Okay. Okay, I, think I think it was like season five or six. It was one. It's pretty recent. Six wow. is still coming. We're okay. at five now. Six is coming in April. Yeah. I believe. Wow, uh, that's a lot of seasons. I love. It, I love procedurals. So I have to say, it's like there's something broken in my soul. I think that makes me love that kind oh. of cop procedural stuff. I'll, I'll throw out. I just finished the Night Manager uh, with oh, Tom Hiddleston. Oh. I would not suggest that i did not enjoy oh, it. you didn't like that really i thought it was really good it's yeah, me too. Nah, my friend my friend said to me i should watch it because he liked it i mean it was okay it didn't blow me away the, the it was like the music was so like care now care now you're gonna care now this is mm. drama it's drama it's gonna stuff's gonna happen and you're just like uh, i don't know but my friend's main point was i will lay money that Christopher Nolan watched 
the night manager and took Elizabeth Debicki's character, Hugh Laurie's girlfriend, <laughs> directly out of that movie and put her character and actress and all into Tenet. Yeah, he made and sure she remained that, completely two-dimensional. That I agree with. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know what this reminds me of? When, uh, when we first did our first podcast at FX Guide, we started the discussion on the way back from Vegas with Jeff, John, and I in the car with a recorder just recording our conversation. And we decided it was so much fun having the conversations that it was kind of criminal uh, to not sort of publish it somewhere so other people could <laughs> enjoy cool. the conversation. And the trouble with you guys is I don't want to end the conversation because it's just so much fun talking to you. But having said that, we do Wait, have to I just finish. have to say, though, that you mentioned Mad Max 2, also known yes. as in North America as the Road Warrior. And I just have been wanting to say the whole time that, you know, two days ago, I saw a rig that was big enough to hold that tanker. You want to get out of here? <laughs> Talk to me. It's true. It's the best line <laughs> in the movie. It is. Yeah, no, and that that was just so believable. It's an Australian accent. I've got to say. Well, it's the best uh, you can do, you know. Come on. No, no, it was it was good. It was well, good. We're, and, we're and, in the pantheon of average accents, you know. Uh, I just listen to Mike right all the time. I try to channel my inner Mike Seymour, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a slight shift to a dingo ate my baby, too. So, it's, you know. Yeah, we, we had a lot of fun with Meryl <laughs> on that one. I can tell you. A dingo ate my baby. Like, yeah. Struth. Of course, we don't actually have shrimp in this country. So the one that I used to be tormented with as a child is all my American friends. Shrimp I'll throw a shrimp the on the Barbie. And we're like, yeah. we don't call them shrimps. They're prawns. Yeah. understand that was an ad. Oh, and that uh, koalas were actually Qantas bears. I'm like, oh, oh those they're... cute Qantas bears. And I'm like, yeah. Qantas bears? What are you talking about? Oh, they're in the Qantas ad. Yeah, no, they're actually called koalas. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, enough of that. Um. As I say, I could talk to you guys all day long and I wish I could, but I can't. But I want to thank you guys for listening. And uh, and uh, we just do applaud and uh, and love the visual effects artists that put blood, sweat and tears into yes. these films. We apologize when we criticize the plot if it sounds like we uh, are unappreciative of your efforts. But we know a lot of visual effects artists listen to the show. So hopefully uh, you can... Uh, well, forgive us, I guess, for for not necessarily. I mean, it must be so hard listening to us prattle on when you spent probably nine months of your life <laughs> trying bastards. to make the perfect show. Yeah, ahead, exactly. <laughs> and we we get it. We've been there. But uh, again, thank you guys so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Mike Simmel. See you guys later. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx@fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide LLC.